The aim of the Gospel of John is to establish faith. It is to fortify faith in Jesus Christ. It is designed to convince people, to to persuade individuals, men and women, that Jesus is God's anointed one, that he is God's son. And so John opens up in the Gospel of John with his opening discourse, introducing to us the divine word. And he tells us that the divine word is the only begotten from the Father. He is also described to us as the Christ who is in the bosom of the Father. And then he spends the rest of his time revealing or presenting this uh, testimony of the Gospel of John, proving what he has just said is true. That what uh, uh, the fact that he is the, the only begotten of the Father and he is in the bosom of the Father is based upon everything that then follows in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And then when you come near to the end of the book, You look there in chapter 20, you know, closing verses, you have John then making a summary statement. And he summarizes that his testimony that he's just presented to to us and to them is such that it is sufficient. The testimony that I have revealed to you, that I've recorded to you, is sufficient to instill faith. The faith you need to believe in Jesus, to believe that he is the Christ, to believe that he is the Son of God. This morning I want to spend some time in the Gospel of John chapter 4, if you will. Open your New Testaments there. And so you have this encounter uh, of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at a well. And you have this discussion that takes place. And as you all know, it is a momentous occasion. And what makes this so momentous is the fact that Jesus, on this particular occasion, as he does all these other times as well, is unveiling to this woman the mystery of the Christ. And the fact is that the Messiah had come in the flesh, and he'd come in the flesh to to be the Savior of the world. And he had come to make men from all countries and from all cultures complete. Complete in the Messiah. Complete in Jesus Christ. And so therefore he came to give his life in a sacrificial death. But he also came to live. He came to live in the flesh. And while living in the flesh, he came to impact people's personal lives. And that's what takes place in John chapter 4. That Jesus interacts with this specific woman and he impacts her in in an amazing way. So if you will, turn your eyes now and your focus to our text in John chapter 4. And we begin reading there in verse 5. And so it says, So he came to a city of Samaria. And uh, and it's called Sychar, Sychar. And near, near the apostle of ground, you know, he says that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And he says Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. 
Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? who gave us the well and and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. So I will never be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But... An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I go back wrong way. This man, Jesus, is the Messiah. And on the surface, there is nothing about Jesus that would have appeared outstanding. He just looked like a Jewish guy, a Jewish man, obviously tired from walking a long distance and needing a drink because he's thirsty. And perhaps even too tired to go with his disciples back into the city or the town or village of Sychar to buy food. That's, that's what he looks like. He's a Jewish man sitting at a well needing a drink. There is nothing about him physically They would say to you, wow, this is someone very special. And others who would have known Jesus from his past, 
you know, would have known his family, would have looked at them and just concluded, it's just an ordinary Jewish family whose parents are named Joseph and Mary. And yes, he's got some brothers and he's got some sisters. And so it was very ordinary from that, from that standpoint. And yet in this particular text, what we have here is the fact that you have the coming Messiah declaring to us, declaring to man, all things. Now the Samaritans, the Samaritans had some knowledge of Jehovah. They had some. Maybe not all, not all that they should have had. But they had some knowledge of Jehovah, and they would have, you know, they would have had some knowledge of the Pentateuch, that is, the law, the books of the law of Moses. And so, over time, there had been developed this controversy regarding the place of worship. The Samaritans, in their history, had once built a temple on Mount Gerizim. And they had, they had said, this will be the place of our worship. Now, if you remember, Mount Gerizim was important to Jewish history, to the history of the Israelite nation. It was that Mount of Blessings that uh, you read about in Deuteronomy chapter 11. You know, when Moses is talking to that, that you know, second generation, that generation is going to enter the promised land. And he tells them, you know, when you come to this place and you're going to do this, you know, between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And then when you turn over to, to Joshua chapter 8, you find Joshua carrying out the very thing that Moses commanded. And so there was some significance to this place in the history of Israel. For example, in Joshua 8, verse 33, all Israel with their elders and officers and judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. Verse 34, it says, They read all the words of the law, the blessing and the cursing, according to all that is written in the book of the law. He says, There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. So this particular place had some significance to the history of Israel, but for the Samaritans, they had turned it into something quite sacred. And so they had built a temple once there in that place. And what you have here is now a controversy over whether that place was the place of worship. Now, that temple had been destroyed. It was gone at the time of Jesus. It was destroyed back in around 432 B.C. So a few hundred years before Jesus came to earth, but it was still considered a sacred place. And so you had this controversy about the place of worship going on for quite some years now. But the Messiah, the Messiah was one who had come to declare all things to us. And the Samaritans, at least this woman, the Samaritan woman was aware of that. She knew that when the Messiah came, he would declare all things to them. And you see that back in chapter 4, verse 20, 25. He says, I know this Messiah is coming. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. She knew that. 
Now, how would she have known some of this? Well, if you are familiar with the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, you would know that in the first book of Moses, the book of Genesis, you have, for example, the, the promise to Abraham. That the seed of Abraham one day would be a blessing to whom? He would be a blessing to all nations. Genesis 22.10. And perhaps she was somewhat aware as well of what else was found in that first book of Moses. Later on in the days of Joseph in Egypt when Jacob blesses his sons. And in those blessings he blesses Judah and says that the ruler staff, the ruler staff will not depart from Judah... Until he comes to whom it belongs. And then the people were into obedience to him. Genesis 49. Or even better so, you could turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And you would see in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that there is a prophecy about about Moses. And And so in Deuteronomy 18, reading there in the 18th and 19th verse. This is what Moses tells the nation. He says... God says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will be, I will put my words in his mouth. Now, this is God speaking to Moses, and Moses then reiterating God's words to the nation. He said, I will raise up a prophet among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So how would the Samaritan woman know that when the Messiah comes, that he would be one who would declare all things? Well, the law had foretold that. That's how. The words of God had foretold the coming of this one from God. And so the Messiah was to be a revealer. A revealer of the will of God. A revealer of all that God commanded. And what we find here on this particular encounter between Jesus and this woman is that Jesus says, I am that man. Jesus identified himself as the very one who would declare all things to us. The very one who's talking to this woman. What an encounter that would have been to be that woman. And to have those very words fall from the lips of the Son of God and say, I am the guy you're looking for. And that harmonizes with everything that the Gospel of John is all about. For if you go back to chapter 1 again, you look into those introductory things about who Jesus is and, and what Jesus will accomplish. We find in chapter 1, verse 14 and verse 19, that uh, the Word was full of grace and truth. This Word it became flesh, and when they looked upon Him, they held the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18, it tells that, okay, and he would be the one who, ex- who would explain the Father to us. You want to know the Father? You need to know the Son. He'll explain to you. Or over in John, you know, John chapter 8, verse, verse 16, when Jesus, in his ministry, you know, makes the defense concerning the words that he is speaking and the words that he's teaching. In the 16th verse of the Gospel of John, he says, If I judge, 
If I do judge, my judgment is, is, is true, for I am not alone in it. But I and the Father who sent me. What's he saying? He's saying, my judgments are my Father's judgments. I'm not doing this by myself. His words have been put in me. I've come to declare all things to you. Or over down in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John, you know, Jesus continues to, to make these bold statements about his role as the revealer of all things from God. He says, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Now, the one says, I know the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will declare all things to me, to us. And Jesus says, I'm that man. And I'm here declaring all things to you. Because his words are his father's words, and the father's words are the son's words. And so we need to recognize the impact of this occasion when he talks about how he is the man. I'm the man you're looking for. But what else did he declare her? Not only does he identify himself as I'm the one who declare all things to you, what has he told us here? Well, Jesus the Christ has declared to us what proper worship would be. That's one of the things he, he, he reveals here in this passage. As he unveils the mysteries of Christ. Not only does he identify himself as, I'm the Christ, I'm the revealer of the words of God. My words are the very words that the Father has put in me. He says, this is why I declare to you about worship. Now the word worship simply has a definition you know, something like making obeisance or doing reverence in the Greek. It literally just means to kiss toward. And so that's why often in, in New, Testament, New Testament times you would see kneeling or prostration being associated with doing homage. You know, to show respect and honor to someone. And so Jesus you know, here on this occasion declares to us what proper worship will be. Now, service to the king, though, does not automatically satisfy all requirements of worship. You could be a faithful servant and haven't rendered worship to the king. Because worship involves a unique action. Worship involves action that's taken with purpose and with, with thought and with intent to, to kiss toward the one who's worthy to be worshipped. That's worship. And Jesus basically says here, in answer to this controversy of the place of worship is, there is going to be a change of worship that has been ordained. And it's not going to matter whether you're in Samaria or in Jerusalem. You know, it, it doesn't matter whether it's, it's, it's Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion. The time is coming Worship is going to change. Jesus is the one who declares all things to us. And he's declaring here there's going to be a change of worship. Now, God had made a covenant, as we know, with the nation of Israel. 
And that's what we find in the Old Testament. And in that Old Testament, in that covenant, he had taught his children of old the proper manner to worship. And so you read there in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy instruction about acceptable worship under that covenant. And it did involve a sacred place. And it involved a holy sanctuary. And all of that was according to truth. And that's why he would say to this woman, in regarding to this place of worship, you know, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. The worship of the old covenant was according to truth. It was from God. But God is now saying to us through his Messiah... The one who is, he has sent to declare all things to us, God is saying to us, I'm going to change things. That has been ordained. He says the hour is coming. And now is when this, this will be the bottom line. And you think about that. That the change here is all about going from an old covenant worship to a new covenant worship. This passage is not about whether you know, God accepts insincere or sincere worship. That's not the point. Neither is it about truth versus error. Because God has never accepted insincerity. God has never accepted error. Either under the old covenant. God did not accept insincerity and falsehood. That's not the point here. The point here is there's going to be a change of worship. You're going from a system... You know, where worship was according to what the Jews were taught, to a system that is not going to be the same. And so with the change of covenant, what does that mean? There's a change of priesthood. And there's a change of sacrifice. And there's a change of temple as well. So that's why your argument over Gerizim or Jerusalem is going to become inconsequential. That's not going to be... A major point. Because you can turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. And, and just read some of the excerpts that, you know, that are made in the argument about this change of covenants. And so, for example, in Hebrews chapter 7, in verse you know, 11 through 12. So now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on it, the basis, you know, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of, a, of the law also. If you want Christ to be your priest and you need him to be, then the covenant has to change. Drop on down a few more verses. You look there in verse 18. For on the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Look down a little further. Verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, speaking of Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's the priest you need. You need a divine high priest. You need Jesus. In turn, maybe a couple pages over and, and continue to see the, the, the argument and the defense that's being made here in this inspired book of Hebrews from God. And you look here in chapter 9. You look in chapter 9 and you read there in verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And that's why it would say in verse 15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new Covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. A change has been made. And spiritual worship necessitates that it has to be based on truth. He says, true worshipers can worship in spirit and truth. The geographical location is going to be insignificant. But how you worship is going to matter. How you worship. Is it in spirit and in truth? Now, God has always, always held man accountable in holding to his pattern. That was true in the Old Testament under the, the first covenant. That is true now in the New Testament with the new covenant. And what we have here is, in a, just like I say, the point, here's the Messiah, Christ. And, he, and you have this you know, building to the point where Jesus says, I am the guy. I am the man you're looking for. He says, because he's the one who's going to declare all things to us. And one of the things he declared to us is this, proper worship. And Jesus made that point during his lifetime when he rebuked vain worship. Talked about Matthew 15, vain worship. Because men strayed from God's word. But what else does he declare to this woman and to all of us? Not only does he declare the proper manner of worship, but also Jesus declares to us that he knows, he knows the hearts and lives of all men. Now this was the first meeting between Jesus and this woman. This woman has never met Jesus before. This is their first meeting together. And Jesus struck a chord with this woman when he made her aware that he knew. You know, Jesus has never seen this woman with his physical eyes. He's never spoken to this woman before. And suddenly he makes aware to this woman. He says, I know all the men that you've had in your life. I know everything about you. I even know about this relationship you're in right now with a man who is not your husband. I know that. I know your past and I know your present. And when she hears this, you know, she concludes that surely Jesus must be a prophet of God. He must be at least a prophet from God because no ordinary man 
No order man, man could have known all of that without God's guidance. There's a similar occasion in the Gospel of John. Earlier on in the ministry, we have the same thing happening where Jesus convicts the heart of a man, a man by the name of Nathaniel in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, where Philip introduces Nathanael to Jesus. And Nathanael is a little bit of a skeptical person of whether Jesus is the one they're looking for or not. And if you recall, when, G, when they come and approach Jesus, Jesus says to, to, uh, to Nathanael as he's approaching him, he says, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deceit. They haven't even been introduced yet. And Jesus says to him as he's approaching, there is a man that there is no deceit in his character. And Nathaniel responds by saying to him, how do you know me? How do you know that? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. We have no clue what was going on under that fig tree. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what he's doing at all. And then it doesn't matter. And you don't need to run with imagination either. The point is, Jesus knew. Jesus knew. Jesus is the Messiah. Why? He's come to declare all things to us. Declare to us what God has commanded. Declare to us what proper worship is. Declare to us that he knows the hearts and lives of all of us. God's anointed one knows everything about everyone. He knows all our actions. He knows all our words. He knows all our thoughts. There's not a single thing hidden from God, from the Son of God. He can lay you bare. There's nothing he can't reveal and declare about any one of us. There's no secret that you keep from men that Jesus doesn't know. And if he wanted to tell the world, he could. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Christ who's come to declare all things. Not only what, not only what God has commanded, not only what God you know, has ordained in regard to worship, but also he's to come to declare the hearts of us all so that we are laid bare to see our true need for him. But then finally, we see in this particular passage that Jesus came to declare the gift of God. It's just interesting when you look here in the unfolding of those events, and as we looked at, we started with the, the conclusion and we worked backwards. But you, you, when you think about as, you know, you've got this encounter, you've got the request for some water and the discussion begins from one point to the next. And you look here in, in chapter 4, verse 10, when the woman says, you know, you know, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. You know, why, why are you talking to me? And Jesus said to her, if you knew 
the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink. He says, in other words, you put the, you want to paraphrase this in more modern lingo. He says, if you really knew, if you really knew who was talking to you right now, you'd be asking him for a whole lot more important stuff. If you knew, if you knew the gift, if you knew who's talking to you, you'd be asking me. You'd be asking me. Too often, like this woman, or even like Nicodemus back in chapter 3, too often, we as men, mankind is short-sighted. We have a hard time seeing past the end of our noses because we focus so much and we focus too much on physical things. And we get distracted by the immediate concerns. And what we need to understand, we need to rise above thinking primarily of the physical needs and primarily of physical relief. Because that's exactly where this woman goes. And that's not where she needed to be thinking down. Jesus had so much more to declare to her. He had so much, something so much better to offer her. And he says, if you knew, if you knew, then you'd be asking me what's really important. And so he says here in this particular passage, particularly down there in verse 13 and 14, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He says, if you knew the gift of God, is Jesus the gift or is Jesus the giver of the gift? Or does it really matter? I would suggest to you, Jesus is both. Jesus is both. Jesus is both the gift. God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave us his son. Jesus is the gift. Is he just the gift? No. He's not just the gift either. He's also the giver of the gift. He's both the gift and the giver. And he says, we need to know the gift. If we knew the gift, what would we be doing? We'd be asking him. And he would give living water. The water that all souls need, most of all, is the source of constant spiritual nourishment and nutrition. Spiritual satisfaction. And a source that needs no replenishment because it, it is a source that springs up to eternal life. And yes, Jesus is greater than Jacob. Jesus is greater than the Jacob that gave, gave you know, the Samaritan this well. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the man that God anointed to be the revealer of all things, to declare to us all things of God. Whether it's worship whether it's our own hearts, our own sins, or whether it's the gift that we need to sustain our life. 
Jesus came to declare all things from God to man. He came to reveal all that has been commanded by our creator. And so, yes, he is the one. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the very one whom the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms have foretold us for centuries upon centuries. He is the one that God has spoken through to mankind so that we may know God and have access to the Father. And unless we take heed, unless we listen and obey the word of Christ, unless we take heed to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very word he has spoken will judge us in the end. He came to be the savior of the world. He came to offer us the source of eternal life. And that truth demands a response. It demands from us a decision that each one of us have to make for ourselves. For example, acceptable worship requires what? It requires God-ordained worship. you got to do something. And you got to do what's right in God's eyes. The benefits of the water of life that's offered to us through Jesus Christ, you got to drink it. You have to drink, you have to take, and you have to consume what Jesus offers us. It's there for the taking, but you've got to come. You have to come to Jesus. Because faith in Jesus obeys what he's commanded. In Mark chapter 16, verse 16, it says, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, and he that does not believe shall be condemned. You have a choice to make. You believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, but you've not rendered obedience to his gospel. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. And he has commanded that we must be willing to confess that faith with our mouth before others, as well as repent of our sins. We've got to make a change in our life. We've got to be committed to turn away from a life and a path of sin. And to begin that journey of righteousness by being buried with Christ in baptism, immersed in water for the remission of our sins, to be raised up by by faith to receive the grace of God of forgiveness. Jesus came to declare all things to us, and that's what he's declared to become a Christian. And if you are a Christian, and there is sin in your life that you've not confessed and repented of and prayed to God concerning, if we assist you to pray with you or pray for you, we encourage you as well. Make your wishes known. Come forward while we stand and sing the song. That